Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is the founder of i5 Services with the mission to create solutions that change industries and drive direct savings to the bottom line. It is a company that takes a unique approach to continuous improvement. And for the last eight years, he has been working tirelessly to connect the U.S. manufacturing supply chain. That sounds like a big job. He's also a Hero Club member, and I want to talk a little bit about that because I think it's an important part about the philosophy of the Hero Club and what all that means. Please welcome today, Alan Davis. Hi, Alan. How are you, Dr. Gary? Thanks for having me on today. So, Alan, as we always start this, tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get into this whole manufacturing supply chain thing? I mean, that's that's a pretty big job trying to connect all of that. Yeah, you know, as we started this about eight years ago, we really recognized a significant opportunity and a significant need in our U.S. manufacturing supply chain. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of history and and what brought us into that, you know, we started i5 Services about 11 years ago, and we started the company with the intent and the vision of being able to bring about significant technologies that would change or disrupt and improve an entire industry. We did that because, and I'll take one more step back before I, I finish that, because I had worked for another company and we had implemented a solution for one of the world's largest airlines. And this happened to occur in 2001, just after 9-11. And uh, we had started working with the airline. In fact, I had just moved with my family overseas to run this project for my former company. And it was really just a strange time, if you will, to be overseas, as I'm sure everyone had different experiences for 9-11. Ours were really very different being in another country when that occurred. You know, one of the things that we were working on at the time was a revenue improvement solution for the airline. And what what we mean by that is we were looking at where they were losing revenue from ticket sales. And they knew they had a problem because their revenue department had uncovered uh, sales that were occurring. For example, you know, a first class ticket being sold for $10,000 and a couple of hundred dollars being sent back to the airline, whereas a majority of the sale of that ticket should come back to the airline. And so we helped build a technology that would allow them to determine how much every ticket cost, who sold it, and how much revenue was supposed to come back to the airline for the sale of the ticket. And we turned that technology on shortly after 9-11. And the timing, as you can imagine, was not great. Travel agents were already struggling. Airlines were struggling. The whole entire industry was in a bit of a difficult time. And we dumped about $4 million of claims out on the industry in about two weeks. And travel agencies threw a a little bit of a stink and, uh, well, a relatively large stink. It hit the British papers. It caused a a major stir. And they didn't disagree with the claims. They recognized that they were right. However, what they claimed was it was an acceptable business practice for them to do business the way they had been doing it. 
they were withholding a portion or a large portion of the price of that ticket and saying, well, it was just normal business practice. Yeah. And that was that was an acceptable way of doing business. Mm. And it had been for probably decades in that industry. Mm. And so the airline we were working with at the time decided to give a notification period. And that notification period then was about two months. And after the period was over, we started the technology again. We collected about $40 million a year for them. Um, and they figured it had a deterrent effect of about $120 million. And so from that experience, then we recognized, and again, that software, that technology was rolled out to almost all the world's major airlines now. There was a company in India that actually bought the solution from my former employer, and they own it and run it today. And a, a very effective and helpful piece of technology, but it really changed the airline industry at a time when it needed to have some very significant changes. And so that really, when the downturn of the economy happened in 2008, I took a nice severance package. We started i5 services because we really wanted to build these types of technologies. So as we saw what was happening in the manufacturing industry, we ran a project here in the state of Utah. So the state had run some economic development studies, and one of those studies in the manufacturing sector came back with this recommendation that they needed a virtual industrial park or a way to better connect the manufacturers. Because if a manufacturer could find someone to supply them something that they needed that was in the state, it kept jobs here, kept dollars here, and all those things. So we ran some workshops with large, medium, small size manufacturers, and we sat down with them for months. This was every other Friday for four months. We sat with them in a conference room and we said, okay, tell us why this solution doesn't currently exist. Why doesn't Google provide what you need? Why can't you get this from ThomasNet or MFG.com or any of the other solutions that are out there? What is it that you need? How is it you need to connect? And really delve into very deeply what they needed to do to be able to connect. What we came away with, well, first off, toward the end of that, one of the large manufacturers who was a part of it said, we're ready to award a $70 million contract outside of the state. Are you in a position where you could actually help us see if there is someone in the state. And we said, yeah, the prototype's already built and let's go ahead and, and run it as a test. And we said, great. They said, our buyers have already scoured the state. We can't find anyone who can produce this anywhere close to us. We ran the search and sure enough, two miles from their facility was the exact company that they needed. They had the right government clearance. They had the right certifications. They had the right equipment, excess capacity, everything that was needed to deliver that contract. But they didn't even know they were there. And that's what really started us on this journey to connect the U.S. manufacturing supply chain because we can't or prior to our solution, you really couldn't see what manufacturing capabilities we had in the U.S. So with Dun and Bradstreet and Department of right. Transportation and, and Labor and all this stuff in the government, state governments, we've got, like you said, Google and all that. So basically what you're saying is that people were relying entirely on whatever marketing was out there for a manufacturer supply to be able to find that marketing in the cosmos to find a vendor. And if they didn't look in the right place, then they didn't find it. So you collected all this information and put it into a single database. Is that basically what you did? Yeah. So that's basically it. We've been working at it for eight years now. And as you can imagine, and as you uh, recognized right out of the gate, you know, this is an arduous undertaking and it's not just mm -hmm. the technology. It's not just putting the data together. A lot of it is getting people in the U.S. to work together. 
to agree to collaborate, to really agree that we need a U.S. solution. And the pandemic has really brought that to the forefront and helped everyone understand that not only do we need it, but we desperately need it. And we have to work together in order to have this. And the task now is less about uh, the technical challenge and a lot more about the political challenge. It's mm. about trying to bring people together. It's about helping people work together who maybe have not worked together for many, many years. We uh, partnered with the National Association of Manufacturers as our partner on our national solution. So we have a state-level solution and then national solution, and they're all connected together on the back end. So it's one big database. And there's reasons why we've needed to do that. But as we started working with them, we recognized that this public-private partnership concept that dates back decades has actually been one of our most effective ways of bringing about disruptive change and innovation in our country. And so getting the government to work together with industry and to include academia in that is really kind of the key to making all this happen. And so as we worked very closely with our partners, and we now have hundreds of partnerships on these platforms as we have worked to roll them out, both at the national level and at the state level, we've realized that that connectivity um, needs to happen, not just in the database, but with the people as well. And so great, great undertaking. And during the pandemic, this is really really turned out to be a valuable solution. And I think many people are now beginning to understand just how much we have needed this in the U.S. So when I, you know, when I think about the complexity of this and just listening to you and, and based on my experience in manufacturing back years ago, but I'm, I'm thinking about this, the technological challenges you have, the political challenges, business owner policies and procedures, regulatory requirements, availability of information data and availability in a format that you can actually see, use and collect the standardization of that stuff. And then you said academics so that as people learn, whatever it might be, whether it's technical learning or academic learning and education is trying to bring all this stuff together to recognize that we have all of this information out there, but no way to really collect it and understand it and have people working together. And there's going to be some resistance to it in some ways. But what I'm also hearing you is this is a great thing that we talk about is something as stunning as what's happened with COVID is we've created an awareness of a need that we weren't aware of before. Yeah, that that we have resources right here that we can use, but we're not using them because maybe it's a, a nickel cheaper to go to China or go to Bangladesh or wherever we want to go for manufacturing. If I summarize that, that, that complexity up at, at all? Absolutely. You're hitting right on it. Right. And it doesn't mean that we wouldn't do any manufacturing overseas. What it means is we have critical supply, right? And that is critical to our national security, I guess, is when I say critical, that's what I mean, is critical to our national security. So the supply or production of our defense, pharmaceutical, medical, and food, which are four primary key areas that absolutely need to be manufactured here, and we can't have an over-dependence on production for those four main areas, then that kind of changes the way we think about it. But you're, you're absolutely right. You're hitting right on the complexity because another thing, and, and this is just a, a little tidbit that's probably worth putting out there, and that is it was amazing when we first started to realize that in the U.S. and really in the world, there is no common taxonomy, if you will, or, or vocabulary that's used for manufacturing processes. 
And we actually had to create the first comprehensive taxonomy and manufacturing processes to be able to help people find a manufacturer based on what they do, not what they produce. So if you're trying to go and look for what they produce, you can find some of that on Google or in DMB or other places, right? But if you're trying to find a manufacturer based on what they do, what their capabilities are, that just didn't exist. And so there's a lot of those kinds of things that make it very complex. So understanding their capabilities is more important in some ways so that if there's a product that's needed, what you're looking for is a manufacturer that might not even, there there may not be a manufacturer out there that creates this product. But if you know the process and the, the capabilities of a manufacturer, you might be able to call them up and say, do you think that you could make this? This yep. is our design. Would you be interested in a, well, like you said, a $70 million contract? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. I can't imagine what, what that phone call was like to that owner when they got a call. and said, listen, I have this little contract for you, $70 million, And they, you know, if it was a small manufacturer, that would be a yep. huge contract for them. It was. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's weave this, though, into the eight years of leadership and what you've had to do with these disparate organizations, groups, leaders yourself to engage these organizations, these people to come around, you know, in these baby steps that I would think it's like moving each one of these ahead a little bit. That's why I said, well, why haven't you, you know, conquered the world in eight years? You know, come on, where's the problem, right? And you're like, oh my God, are you kidding me? (laughs) Talk a little bit about what some of the challenges have been in building those relationships in order to achieve the goals. Because our definition of leadership is the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassion and accountability. So the first part of this is building relationships with all of these organizations, groups, and human beings. What are some of the challenges and how have you overcome those? So, and I'm, I'm going to share one that I think maybe not have been my, uh, my best strong suit when I first started, but is certainly um, one that I've come and gathered much clarity on. And that is, it takes patience. You know, we live in a world right now where we all expect results overnight and especially from a tech company. So we're a technology company. People expect tech companies are going to take off. They're going to hockey stick and, you know, they're going to have these great returns and it's going to happen overnight and all those things. This type of a change requires an immense amount of patience and a lot of relationship building. I don't consider myself to be a very political person. And, you know, I I may not always say the politically correct thing, but I'm always going to try to do the right thing. And it's helping people understand that we need to do the right thing. And we need to have patience as we do that because it takes bringing a lot of people along and a lot of people that maybe have not worked together previously or um, have had difficult relationships in the past that need to be mended in order for success to be achieved. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we have seen. And one of the things that the pandemic has actually helped with because it's helped people focus and focus is another one. But it's helped people focus on the fact that we have to have solutions that benefit the greater good, if you will. And without those solutions that benefit the greater good, we as a whole actually suffer. And these are conversations that we don't hear enough anymore about doing things for the greater good, for the common good, and for the benefit of everyone in the U.S. And and not just in the U.S., because honestly, by lifting the U.S. manufacturing base and economy, we actually lift the entire world. And we provide a lot of solutions that you touched on earlier, you know, may have been by default given over to others when maybe they shouldn't have been. 
And mm-hmm. so bringing some of that back, correcting that, I, I would say almost level setting it again. How do you convince someone that is running a business today, whether it's a $50 million manufacturing company or a billion dollar, that this is for the greater good? I mean, what does that mean? Yeah, so this is such a great question because we led out with that in the beginning, thinking that people would gravitate to the greater good, but that's not the case, right? You still have to provide direct value to them that they can see and understand before they actually buy into the greater good. So we're redefining the greater good. What's the greater good for me? Right. Yeah. So it's first, they look at it first and foremost as greater good for me. Right. And then they look at it as uh, greater good for the rest of the world. So we've had to uh, put a lot of uh, changes into our approach and into our solution that have direct value, direct benefit to the manufacturer so that they derive immediate benefit from the solution. And then it's easy for them to buy into the greater good as well. You know, there's a lot of talk around work workforce as an example, right? And that uh, companies are having a hard time retaining workforce, finding workforce and, and all those things, right? And that the message of working towards something that has a greater message or a a better benefit to mankind is something that resonates with today's employees, right? And helps with employee retention and acquisition and all those things. But we haven't as overall as a society or as uh, companies really made that switch to ensuring that everyone, our, our customers, our employees, everyone can identify how what we do translates to something beyond just the day-to-day effort that we put in. And so that greater good or that greater cause is really something that has begun to resonate well. And I think something that we should see permeate um, our society a little bit more as we make some of these adjustments and changes. Well, it's interesting you should bring that up because this idea of of purpose bigger than ourselves, of outside of the company, outside of ourselves, everything is inside out, okay? Everything in leadership is about first me understanding what my responsibility of leadership is. And that's why we call this the subtitle of this program, leadership is a responsibility, not a position. So that's where it starts. But the leader, the people that are in the leadership position have to have the capability to communicate that bigger purpose as it connects to the day-to-day work that the individual is doing. I don't think that they, that a lot of leaders don't understand the bigger purpose. I think they're woefully inadequate at connecting that bigger purpose to the work they do every day and being able to get people in the organization to recognize the value that they bring that's helping in that little tiny way with the bigger purpose. Yeah. It's making that connection. Yeah, you hit it spot on. In fact, I just spoke at a seminar maybe three or four weeks ago on that very topic because Mm -hmm. our ability as leaders to help everyone, our employees, our customers, our shareholders, everyone connect to what that bigger picture is, what that that grander vision, that, that bigger impact is beyond just what we do on a day-to-day basis is vital. And I think it's transformational for many leaders, right? It, because it's not something that we necessarily focused on in the past. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to go back. This is no different than 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. But I I remember the quote in defining leadership. And you actually said this leadership is doing the right thing. You know, I'm really being focused on management is doing things right. And the separation between the two. And a lot of times we get focused on the daily activity and what we're doing, not the daily accomplishment 
we get those confused sometimes. And it's the accomplishment of what we do each day that connects to the purpose that motivates people. And as I, I try to get people to understand, it's, it's all about progress. It's not about goal achievement. It's about progress towards goal achievement that keeps us motivated on a daily basis. So with that kind of framework, what progress have you made in eight years? <laughs> you move the needle for you know, <laughs> security, food, farm, or medical in, in terms of our internal national security so that people feel that, you know, I-5 and Alan Davis and your partner and everybody else is working towards this. This is a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a, big deal. It, it's a really big deal. And, and how are you going about making that happen? It's uh, a great question. What baby steps are you making like right now? with yeah. some of these organizations that are helping. You said you just did a speech three weeks ago. I don't know who that was with, but it's a baby step. Yes. Right. What's going on? Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. And let me just see if I can uh, hopefully uh, do it justice in, in a short period of time. But, you know, there is so much happening as part of what we've been doing. So I'll touch on just two or three things. One is these national relationships, the National Association of Manufacturing, the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology Manufacturing Extension Partnership, and that is a mouthful known as NIST or NIST-MEP. They have federal mandate and federal dollars. They've been around for 30 some odd years now to help build manufacturing in the U.S. and strengthen it in the U.S. And our relationship with them, they've actually been working on some legislation that would possibly help to fund uh, the state level solution in every state in the country in Puerto Rico. And so that effort actually is a really vital and important effort to our country. We've been talking to other agencies and organizations who have said, okay, look, we understand. First off, we're beginning to understand how this benefits us. So I'll, I'll share one more. We, uh, we ran a, an event just a few weeks ago with Northrop Grumman. And that event, uh, they came to us and said, look, we have a few parts that are very difficult for us to source. We've been having a hard time finding a manufacturer in the U.S. who could actually, and, and I'm speaking on the defense side right now, but a um, supplier who can actually provide what we need. And we said that's a perfect case study. So we've started these events that we run through our application. And so we had them post their need in there. They include, you know, the, what they need as well as uh, specific requirements they have for any type of certification or restrictions they have so that we have a very detailed understanding of what they're looking for. Now, in defense in particular, we have to be very careful because uh, some information cannot be shared and some can publicly. And so we're very careful about that. And, and I could go into an, on another time, another topic, how much we've done on the security side and working with the Air Force on risk assessment of the supply chain and, and all the different work um, that we have ongoing in those areas. But coming back to the Northrop example, they posted the information that they could. And then we used our databases. So both our state level platform as well as the national platform. And in the national platform, we have about 135,000 U.S. manufacturers now that are listed in that platform. In the state level platform, this happened to be uh, run in the state of Utah. There are about 8,500 manufacturers in the Utah solution. 
So we ran it in both and we were able to identify and we went through both through the platform as well as with our partner relationships because the partner relationships are also vital to this. Uh, We reached out to our partners. We engaged, I think it was somewhere around 26, 27 different partners, both in and out of the state. um, So we could reach as many manufacturers as we needed to. And with those very specific requirements, we were able to identify only qualified suppliers. And then on the day of the event, we just lined it up so the buyers from Northrop um, had back-to-back interviews with qualified suppliers. They didn't have to waste any time, you know, going to a big event and, you know, gathering cards and trying to find a few needles in a haystack. These were all pre-qualified, exactly who they were looking for, exact capabilities, everything they needed. We'd already pre-vetted all of that through the platform and with our partners. So to them, it was a massive value. Number one, it was more direct suppliers that could provide exactly what they needed than they had been able to make contact with in a long period of time. And they got it all in basically an hour and a half of time on one day. And so it was just immensely valuable to them. It was immensely valuable to the manufacturers that we connected with them, uh, valuable to everyone in the ecosystem who helped with that. And that's just one example of the types of things that we're doing because we get daily requests, you know, can you help me find a glass provider in the U.S.? Can you help me find, you know, PPE? Can you help me find whatever the request might be? Because we struggle in the U.S. without the solution to find what we need here. We actually had a group come to us. They do consumer, small consumer items, uh, some appliances and kitchen items and those kinds of things. They supply to large retailers like Bed Bath & Beyond and, and others here in the U.S. They have exclusively been sourcing overseas. But when the pandemic hit, they came to us and said, we would really like to find some U.S. manufacturers who can produce here in the U.S. and can do so competitively. But we don't know. I mean, we, we've tried, but we can't find them. Are there any in the U.S. who can do this? And so we started to connect them to manufacturers in the U.S. who had capabilities. And so they've been able to find manufacturers here. And I could go on and on for hours and, and I won't. But those are the kinds of things that are happening. They're happening on a daily basis. We're able to help government. We're able to help industry. And it's really starting to solve this larger overarching problem we have of not being able to understand our own capabilities. Well, I think as I listen to you talk, I think the important thing here is to recognize that what you're creating is a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And that paradigm shift, that is it's the old school approach to this of who makes this quote unquote product, whatever that product is. And then the process of finding them with a Google search or going to a conference, or like you said, finding the right business card. It's so arbitrary. Yeah. It's, it's like if you don't find that right exact company that might have the capability to do it, but don't make that product right now. And a lot of the stuff you're talking about are new products. They're new. They're new things. They're not not talking about making a light bulb that right. <laughs> has already been developed for the last hundred years. Right. I'm talking yeah. about new technology, new stuff. And you've created a new paradigm by trying to identify manufacturers. And I almost think that using the word supply chain creates a paradigm in my mind that's absolutely false. Yeah, It's not just supply chain, but it's a process capability that you're talking about is the real message. What do people have the capability to make that's not being made today? And how can we work with them as partners to identify them, to connect the need 
with the manufacturers so that that can happen. And that's, that's a whole new paradigm for me. Yeah. When you're creating new paradigms, you're creating, you know, a, a challenge as a pioneer for people to even understand what it is you do and what value you bring to the table. Okay. So you're trying to convince, you know, and I've listed all these technical, political business owners, regulatory availability, standardization, academics, all this stuff with the military food, farm and medical, which are the real key national security areas that you mentioned. Oh, by the way, I just want to make this comment. It's so good to hear that somebody out there is paying attention to this stuff. These important national security areas that have really come to light with COVID. I mean, let's think about it. How much food do we rely on from foreign countries? How much medical equipment do we rely on? We found this out during COVID. We couldn't get freaking masks. Exactly. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Here, here's a statistic that'll startle you, right? 95 to 97%, depending on which numbers you, uh, you follow, of all of our antibiotics are produced in China. Now, wow. you think what would happen if our antibiotic supply were cut off? Right. There are certain things that we have to solve. And the overdependence that the world has placed on China's manufacturing has actually put everyone in a very vulnerable position. That doesn't mean we shouldn't use China for manufacturing. What it means is we have to rethink the way that this has been done because it's not right. And if there were a problem with China or China's supply for any reason, you, you pick the reason, doesn't matter. But that over-dependence that the world has on certain things from China has created a global problem, right? And not just a U.S. problem, but a global problem. If, for example, let's say um, smaller countries who don't have the same buying power as the U.S., were to lose that source of supply from China. And if China is the only producer, who do they turn to, right? So as we become stronger, we actually help the entire manufacturing ecosystem in the world. And so, and this is another concept that's sometimes difficult for people to understand because they're like, well, you know, we can't produce everything here in the U.S. And wh why does everything have to be made here? And it doesn't. But we do have to balance things back out. In what you're saying, you're talking about a mindset of either or. Right. And this is one of the things I fight with in leaders all the time. Stop asking closed-ended either or questions. It's not about either or. I mean, our definition of compassion and accountability, people say, I need to be compassionate or accountable. No, you have to be both every single time you interact with someone. It's just how much of each you have in balance. It might be 90% compassion, 10% accountability one time, and 30% compassion, 70% accountability the next time. And I hope I got those numbers right. But anyway, it's more complex than that. It's not either or. We got to get away from that kind of thinking. And I love the paradigm shift that you're creating in thinking about this whole idea of a process capability. This is, this is awesome. So, and we can talk about it for hours, but I got something else I want to, I want to bring up before we uh, finish up. And that is the Hero Club membership. And the reason I bring it up is I haven't talked to a lot of people on this program about the Hero Club membership and the importance of it and the commitment of the leaders in an organization of the Hero Club. Please describe for our audience what being a Hero Club member means. Yeah, the, oh, that's, that's such a great question. <laughs> so hero leaders lead with ethics. They lead with accountability. They lead with transparency. And I'll tell you how I got involved in Hero Club, and that might explain to you why it, it means so much to me. 
So um, even before the C-suite acquired the Hero Club, it was started by Rob Ryan, a, a billionaire from who sold Lucent Technologies in the 90s. And uh, Rob had this idea because after he had sold the company, he decided to give, I think it was 20% back to the employees. And on that day, created more millionaires in the U.S. than had ever been created previously. Because that twenty percent, I believe, was four or five billion dollars, right? Yeah, it was. It was billions. Right? Right? We're not talking about ten thousand dollars here. We're talking about four or five billion. Because if I remember correctly, it was in the low two twenty three billion or something that he sold it for, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't remember the exact numbers either, but right. but somewhere around there. And he said he was sitting at dinner one night. And a man came up to him and with tears in his eyes said, Mr. Ryan, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I just have to come and shake your hand and tell you thank you. And Rob said, he said, I was a little taken off guard. And he said, I have to apologize. I don't know who you are. (laughs) And the man said, I was a janitor in your company. And for the first time in any generation, my children are now able to go to college and we're now able to do all these things, right? How it had just changed his life and his family's life forever. And it does. It touches me. So I I apologize. I feel a little bit emotional even as I tell the story because it made a significant difference in the lives of many people. And that's when it came to Rob. He's like, look, that's what it's all about. That's what hero leadership is about. It's about making a significant difference in the lives of many people. And you can't do that unless you lead in the right way and you do the right thing always. And so he created this concept of the Hero Club um, where he wanted to engage and bring in other leaders who shared like values, like thoughts, who wanted to give back, make a difference, who would would lead with ethics and integrity and transparency. And so that's what brought me into the Hero Club. Um, I was introduced to Rob and and was able to sit and talk to him about um, the Hero Club and as well as many others who um, were introduced to him at that time. And, you know, when the C-suite acquired it from Rob, I was a little concerned, you know, that maybe some of the uh, values might be lost. And I'm just so pleased that you know, Jeff and Tricia, who lead the Hero Club at the C-Suite, have just done a great job at maintaining the integrity of that organization. And, you know, the people who are involved there are absolutely some of the most wonderful people you will ever run into in the world. Well, they live what so many executives say, which is that our employees are our most important part of our company. And by the way, I, I say the most important part of our company. I don't say asset. I hate that. When we yeah. talk about these assets, I don't. I just don't like the word. So it's a personal trigger of mine. They're, they're what's most important. And if I remember, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit from Rob Ryan, but what I remember him saying when he was asked and interviewed, why did you do this? And he said, well, it was the right thing to do yeah. because these people got us here. And there it is again, doing the right things. It's, it's about leadership. It's not doing things right. It's doing the right thing. So I think that's a great story to wrap this up on. And I'm proud to be part of uh, the C-Suite Network, which the Aero Club is part of, and uh, being a C-Suite advisor myself. So it's a great story. And it's the uh, Hero Factor, which is the book Jeff Hazlett wrote on this, was a bestseller last year and won kind of all kinds of awards this year. And it's great stuff. If anybody's interested, you can get it on Amazon, the Hero Factor. So my last question that I always ask, I warned you, Alan, <laughs> if you could write yourself a letter 20 or 30 years ago and send it back to yourself, if you wrote it today and you could send it back to yourself, what would that letter say? 
You know, it, it would say get into the fray sooner and stay in it longer. You know, so these changes don't come about easily in our world. And there are a lot of changes that are worth making. And in order for us to do that, we have to get into the fray. We, we have to get in and we have to make a difference. We have to stand up. We have to stand forward and not stand down. We live in a world that is very challenging in that way. You can be challenged and will be challenged for just about anything you say or do in life. And uh, you can't fear that. Never, never step down from the fear. Face it and face it courageously and you'll make a difference. Yeah, that's that's a great message. I I can relate in my path over the many, many years that uh, I went from army manufacturing into tech companies, spent five and a half years getting my master's and doctorate so that I could do what I do today. And after I'm going into my 13th year here very soon, and I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah. You know, do you feel after eight years with I-5, do you feel like you're just getting started? You're just, oh, yeah. you're just getting there, right? Making some momentum, making a difference. Yeah. yeah. And, and I tell you, you know, you, you look back and you say, wow, you know, it took me a long time to get to this point where I feel like I'm finally starting to make a difference. Right. And so, you know, you do have a little bit of regret thinking, wow, if I had started sooner, you know, maybe I could have been making more of a difference sooner, but you really can't ever, you know, question yourself or uh, really question the path that you took to get there because all of it is valuable. All of it is valuable. Every piece of it is a piece of you that brings you to where you are today. Exactly. We did a boot camp a couple of weeks ago, and I had two of the boot camp participants. Our leadership development program starts with a three and a half day, very intense three and a half day boot camp. And I, I told people this contributing and making a change in people's lives is really what I'm about. Because leadership is an inside out process. We have to learn to lead ourselves and so on. And so I want to make sure that all of those that have helped me along the way, that I pay them back by paying it forward. Yeah. And I had two of the people come up to me afterwards and with tears in both of our eyes, they're saying, dude, you're making a difference. Just yeah. keep it up. Yeah. And when we hear that, that energizes us, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> it energizes. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank you. for being my guest today. I'm just thrilled about what you're doing and having some manufacturing experience. If there's anything that I can do to help you, I'd love to talk to you about that because I don't know what I could do, but I have a background in technology and manufacturing and engineering degree and doing everything I can to develop leaders so that these leaders do connect their higher purpose to their day-to-day -day work. And that's the work that I do. So thanks so much, Alan, for being our guest today. Thank you. And thank you for all you're doing. It does make a difference. So I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, Alan. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassion, accountability. Thanks for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care and be well. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.